0: programming throwdown episode 119 the art of vacations take it away patrick
1: well, hopefully, uh, all you listeners aren't going to be thinking you need a vacation after listening to this episode. No, I'm
0: just <laughs> Wait, let's just really quick. I want to talk about just like how important this episode is. Like people might see this title and think, wow, Patrick and Jason, they've run out of programming languages or something, but no, this is super, super important. We preempted all of our, our other show ideas to talk about this, especially with COVID and everything. So, so stay tuned. You're going to learn a lot of good stuff.
1: I think a lot of people over, I mean, when we're recording this now, we're at like what, 18, 18 ish months, 17 months of, yeah, you know, kind of like work from home, COVID, all this stuff. I think people are really burning out. Like, I, I yep. the people I work with, the people like I talk to, I, I try to encourage them, like, take time off. Even if you are just going to stay at home still, like, get away from your computer. People have gone so long without taking vacations or going anywhere. And even if you're worried about health stuff, or whatever, I mean, just the men, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. But I don't want to yeah, spoil yeah, totally. all of it.
0: but stay tuned it's really important
1: yes thank you don't 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 change the channel um (laughs) we're showing our age Uh, All the intro topic for for this this episode i wanted to talk about how cool it is it's been a like somewhat recurring topic on the show talking about space technology and uh going to space and we've covered various topics over the years that feels weird to say um, and I want to say, like, since our last sort of duo episode, there's been like a bunch of really cool news. And I'm not even going to really talk about any of the sort of SpaceX-related news. Uh, that's like highly covered by other people. It's that super exciting. But just like not SpaceX-related uh, space news, there's been a lot of cool stuff happen. So Virgin Galactic and uh, had Richard Branson go to, I guess now we have to put air quotes space in air quotes. There's a whole feud over that. But I mean, like, regardless, the fact that they got to where they've been headed for. For years.
0: Well, wait, real quick. Was he weightless? Because that's how yes. I define space. Okay. That counts as space to me. I mean, I'm not an expert, but.
1: So there's a difference between like the U.S. and like other countries about where the launch. So this wasn't intuitive to me. I was explaining it to someone and it, it's, it's kind of weird, but Earth's atmosphere, and I'm going to get it wrong, but Earth's atmosphere doesn't just like stop at some point, right? It's like a gradient. And it's dense by the surface and then as you go higher and higher and higher it gets less and less and less less dense right but what where do you put the cutoff point because it's kind of like a probability thing like or a density so the density of atmosphere goes lower and lower but it doesn't just stop at some point yeah that makes sense so you have to sort of arbitrarily kind of define a line where it's like mostly you're out of the atmosphere um, but even when you're sort of in orbit, and clearly what most people call space, you're still experiencing drag and effects of the atmosphere and, and low Earth orbit satellites still experience um, actually quite a bit of drag. It's a it's a it's a pretty big problem for them to overcome. Um, so yeah, but going weightless is one way to do it. But you can go weightless in the what do they call the vomit comet, The you know, jet passenger plane, they stripped all the seats out. And then it goes in a par- parabolic set of like sinusoidal uh, up and downs. Um, and yeah, you can go weightless in that. But you can see the curve of Earth from where they went, you know, it's by some definition space. And then shortly after, in somewhat of a, like, we can call it a race, um, Jeff Bezos went on the Blue Origin rocket to to the space, to the edge of space, um, whatever you want to call it. There was even a kerfuffle about whether who and should or shouldn't be considered astronauts. So um, that all got changed as well. But I think both of those are really cool. There's a separate Virgin company from Virgin Galactic, which is focused on uh, basically space tourism. There's a separate one, Virgin Orbit, which has the ability to actually go into an orbit and put like satellites, small satellites into orbit. And so they also had another, I think it was their second time where they were deployed a bunch of um, these small satellites into orbit. And it's a similar approach. They take a sort of airplane up and then they have a sort of rocket underneath it, but they launch it from a much higher altitude because most of your fuel is spent getting up into speed and through the thickest parts of the atmosphere. Um, and so sort of these three things, just excluding all of the normal NASA stuff and SpaceX stuff, are incredibly exciting. For me at least, I, I don't know like I always felt this was this is was gonna happen space tourism, space tourism if you were a, well I guess you just have to be a billionaire. But now it's it's on a trajectory <laughs> where like you know it'll come down in price over time. I have no idea how low it'll go but the amount and repeatability of people going to space is going to become much more common and every day.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. I think, so the idea is you have an airplane that's carrying a rocket and the airplane can kind of go like, um, can climb slowly because it's going at this like really flat angle. And then at some point the rocket takes off. Is that how it works?
1: Yeah, that's the Virgin approach. That's not how the Blue Origin um, Jeff Bezos one does, but that's how the Virgin Orbit and Virgin Galactic work. Yes.
0: Yeah, that seems cheaper on its face. Like it seems like maybe that that might become they might be able to get the cost down. But you can also we'll reuse
1: see. the the airplane that launched. I mean, there's a bunch of. I guess it's a it's a big design space, and there's many ways to tackle the problems and lots of trade offs. But it's cool to see different private companies doing it with humans on board to see the you know ability to iterate and explore the design space because not everyone's doing it exactly the same everyone has a slightly different approach which means we'll be able to learn much faster
0: yeah it seems like this is really where like um when i think about about engineering sort of hitting mainstream right this is one of those places where like everyone's hearing about these rockets um like not everyone can can watch programming throwdown although they should but but not everyone's watching pro listening to programming throwdown but but uh, everyone can especially like you know children can see this like this new space race and get really excited about engineering and tech and all of that
1: yeah i agree i mean i think you can observe that it's very likely that the uh various space launches even leaving the politics of it aside but between the the sort of soviet union the united states and going to space and both the funding that went into it probably a big contributor but even just the like press and coverage on the news that uh that got you're right jason i think like it's fundamental for people to see like a very visual representation of what a sometimes more abstract you know engineering career can be about
0: yeah that makes sense that's super cool i think so i think i asked you this before but i don't remember the answer it's like When can we go to space for under, let's say, like $20,000? Is that, is that, does that look anywhere on the horizon?
1: I don't know. I I don't remember. I believe it said, I've not gone to their website and tried to buy one myself, but I think Virgin Galactic's flights are like, I think around like $100,000. Oh, that's not far off. They're selling tickets. I, I don't, I'd have to look it up. I don't have it in front of me, but I believe that's right about where they're saying. And of course, like for that, it's like a luxury thing. Like he built this big, if you haven't seen it, you should check out like this big space base and you go, you can go, you know, astronaut training and, um, you know, they put you through some, some sort of like practice stuff. So you kind of know what to expect. There's a whole like luxury lounge where like your family can, uh, you know, wait while you do your flight or whatever. Right? It's a whole, uh, like luxury vacation almost, uh, in the middle of the desert, uh, that culminates with you sort of going to space. Wow. Wow. So it's, it's definitely getting there. Yeah. So I, yeah, a hundred thousand down to 20,000 seems like, we're on, uh, there's a path where you can see that the question that I have and people are debating is, uh, if this becomes cheaper and cheaper and stronger and better rockets, then like, what does it mean for point to point travel? Like going from San Francisco to New York city or going from, uh, China to Europe. And can you put passengers on a rocket, fly them up and land them back on the other side In and sort of like, St- astonishingly small amounts of time can that ever become safe enough and can it become cheap enough for it to be like a alternative to plane travel
0: wow that would be wild yeah can you imagine that would be totally wild it's like uh you take a family with your flight and at some point everyone's weightless, so you have to like strap in and then and then you get back down to earth that'd be wild
1: it's like every science fiction book ever yes
0: yeah it's true Cool. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So how do you follow this stuff? Do you do you subscribe to a bunch of space blogs or is it?
1: Um, There are some good YouTube channels. So um, there's if if you sort of go on YouTube, there's a community building, especially with SpaceX doing like so much out in the open and iteration. Like I think it's. Built up a lot of interest in this, so it's helped to to kind of create enough money in that in that area to have some sort of full time coverage on on YouTube. So you can go check out. That. I don't want to pitch any specific people because then I'll forget others, and people will mock me for it. <laughs> but I guess like that's probably how I keep up to date on most of it. Yeah, yeah, same
0: here. Like, I mean, not 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 with space, but but the way I catch up on current events is mostly through my YouTube subscriptions, which is which is a really odd way, if you think about it, to get the news. And so uh yeah it's it's that is really interesting. I used to use Flipboard. But yeah, I just I I think what happened is I think like it's it's like a recommender. It's an AI fail actually. Flipboard, I don't remember exactly. Oh, oh yeah, here's what happened. So, you know, I was looking up some articles about COVID, you know, way back, like more than a year ago. And then, you know, being AI and recommender systems, it just started inundating me with like all these things about COVID and all these people are getting sick and everything. And so it ruined the experience. And so I just stopped using the app. And so, yeah, really, you know, now it's like, there's not really any place I go to for news other than I just follow some YouTube folks.
1: I have this thing too. Yeah. Like sometimes I'll see an article that is evocative and I will not click it because it's like, if I click this, I'm going to get inundated with you know whatever it may be yeah um you know covid conspiracy or celebrity news or whatever you see something and every time you're like ah i'm bored no i'm not gonna click (laughs) it yeah
0: yeah yeah you'll pay for it later right (laughs) oh man all right on to news my news is uh first news is textile brush which is uh, uh the title is transfer of text aesthetics from a single example so this is a a summary of a research paper i couldn't find any um, implementation of it on GitHub yet, although I'm sure it'll it'll happen um, but it's so cool basically you um, can take a picture that has some text on it and you can you can rewrite the text so if if even if it's handwritten, it doesn't matter so so imagine like you you take a picture of a of a you know billboard somewhere and you can actually just change a text and make the billboard say whatever you want. And it handles like just from that one image, it will learn the style of the font, and it will it will guess what the letters that it doesn't have access to would look like, and then it also figures out the pose of of the text, and then you can you know magic erase that text and then replace it with something else, and I thought that was remarkable. Um, it uses some technology called GANs which is short for uh, generative adversarial networks. Um, and so basically, I don't think to get too much in the weeds here, but, but the way it works is you can imagine like if you have the font, right? So, so imagine like you have the font for, for something and you go and type a bunch of letters into a Google Doc or something like that. And you take a picture of it. You could, now you have, a, let's say you have all the letters A through Z and you know what they look like. You could give half of them to a model, a machine learning model, and then ask it to draw the other half. And you know the answer, so you could tell it whether it's doing a good job or not. And so this is called self-supervision. It's when you know you know the answer, but you're, the identity of this data is the answer. So you know, if you hide the letter A and you ask the computer to regenerate it, you know exactly what the answer is. But it's not because you had a person go and label it and say, this is an A, this is a B. It's because you have a generator that can create all of these things and all these different orientations, right? So self-supervision is becoming like really, really hot right now. It's it's a really interesting area. It's also called contrastive learning. So imagine you have a picture and you delete you know, a section of the picture and ask the computer to regenerate it. And again, you have the exact answer. You don't have to have a person go in and label it. Um, But it's still like a challenge for the computer to try and guess like what would have been there. Now, imagine you have a picture of a house and you delete all the pixels of the windows, right? You're going to have these like really square shaped gaps right where windows should be. And even just as a human, you can look at that and say, oh yeah, there's probably a window there, right? And so you're basically training the AI to do that. And because you... You've subtracted the answer. You have the answer. You don't have to pay a human to go and label that, right? So, anyway, it's kind of spiraling back up. So, all of this technology has culminated in a number of different advances, but one of them is this. And I think this is going to make some really, really funny pictures. You know, I mean, the fact that you can just rewrite anything, I think you can have some really funny parodies come out of this. And maybe that's why there's no open source. People are afraid to 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 uh, to make this and then unleash Pandora's box, but but I thought it was a really really interesting research paper. It covers it in really good detail, and uh, you also check it out.
1: It seems like, and I don't know exactly like we covered what was it called GPT? The yeah, uh, we covered like a variety of these topics. I feel I'm starting to see like a lot more. Kind of like applications, like plug and play, not necessarily advancing state of the art art alone. I mean, although that is also happening, a lot more of like people doing sort of very uh, human level things, like very uh, visceral things, like you're describing with the technology of AI, rather than just like a you know research paper or just some you know some statistics or whatever. But actually, kind of doing stuff that humans can sort of interact with and relate to. I feel like there's like a a groundswell going on there. I don't know where it'll go or where it'll lead. I'm sure you have, you know, sort of thoughts on that, but it definitely seems like some corner got turned.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that that um you yeah, know the challenge for AI in the mainstream has been data and compute, right? So like if you look at Google, Google has so much data and so many computers that they can do things like they can detect, let's say dogs in an image and they could do it really accurately, for you to do that, you would need to have a person go in and say, this picture has a dog, this picture doesn't have a dog, and you'd have to do that millions of times, and you have to pay that person. And so, you know, just to make, if you didn't have any data, um, you had to create all the data sets yourself. Even like, imagine taking photos of millions of dogs, right? Like, you're talking about like, it would take you hundreds of thousands of dollars to build a dog detector, if you didn't, if you had to, you know, curate the data. And so, that has held most people back. I mean, the big companies are obviously doing it. They have the millions of dollars, but for, for most small and medium businesses, they just it's just not an option, right? Um, and so, but then, yeah, if you look at people, right? Like you could, with some very simple training, you could start to recognize different breeds of dogs. Like maybe you do already. I mean, I personally know nothing about dogs, but I feel like if I was to spend a few days, I could, Learn the diff, like the most common breeds, and I could start telling dogs apart, right? So, so as people, we could do it. Um, and so, the question is, how do we build that sort of base of intelligence where then someone doesn't need to spend so much money to do something? And so, self-supervised learning seems to be the answer to that to that question. I mean, the jury is still out, but. But that's where where it's kind of leaning towards which is super exciting because it's going to open a whole bunch of opportunities and and so um yeah just it turns out that playing this game of like guessing the missing thing ends up building a foundation and then on top of that you can do other ai things um, without needing so much data and so you're going to see more and more of this where there'll be some enormous machine learning model that google has trained on all of their images and you can start with that, and then do your task on top of it. I think that it's called transfer learning. I think that is it's really starting to take off
1: now. That's fascinating.
0: Yeah, we'll see where it goes. Um, I mean, you know, the whole appeal of deep learning was that transfer. The whole premise of deep learning was that transfer learning doesn't work, right? People used <laughs> to do people used to do um, SVD, like singular value decomposition, right? Which or PCA or one of these things. So they would take an image and they would crush it down to like 30 numbers, right? And then they would do machine learning on the 30 numbers. And, and actually, Patrick, we did this when we
1: were- Yeah, but yep. I was just gonna say, I remember doing this with you.
0: Yeah, I mean, we, we actually built these things that would take images and crush them down to like either smaller images or, small, or, or sets of numbers. And then we would do machine learning in that small space. And then deep learning killed all of that because it was just so much better. And it could just go from raw pixels to the answer without this in-between layer that is doing something that's not aware of the problem. Right. And so, and so now you're going back to that where now you're going back to like, yeah, Google gives you this model that they trained using self supervision, you know, not knowing anything about your task. The real difference is now you can update the model. So like, imagine if You started with doing SVD, but then if the problem, like uh, if two images are very similar, but they're actually different labels, like one's a dog and one's a cat, but they're just similar, the SVD will put them in the same space, but then your problem will pull them apart again. And so as long as your problem can kind of modify the SVD, you're good. That's a nice thing about doing the dimensionality reduction with neural nets is that you can always change the way that they're reducing later as you introduce like a real problem and so
1: that's that's the gamble yeah go ahead no i was gonna say is that so so idea there is that somehow like when google trains this model on everything right it doesn't end up recording everything but it builds some the words are going to get picky i guess but it builds some understanding about how to tell what is or isn't in a picture and like tell pictures apart and like structure of images so then when you go to train it with a much smaller data set custom to yours like you're only sort of changing how it interprets that structural understanding of the images
0: yeah pretty much and the other the other thing is there's an assumption here that that for example symmetry is important and so almost any image processing thing you're going to train is going to take advantage of that right so imagine for example like here's a really sort of a counter example is if you had just random noise and the goal was to predict like the number of white pixels like so you have so you have a random binary image that's just generated with random numbers and you want to predict how many pixels are white that is going to be really really hard to transfer learn right because there's no symmetry there's 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 nothing real there. And so it's going to be worse actually than if you had just trained it from scratch. Right. But that is like, people don't do that. Right. Like that's not useful. And so when you look at like the class of useful things you can do with computer vision, almost all of them have like need those same building blocks. Uh, And so that's, that's why it becomes useful,
1: man. I think, uh, We should definitely have some more episodes to hear you talk about this. This is actually uh, very interesting.
0: Actually, yeah. So spoiler alert, we're actually, we have a guest who's an expert on exactly this on embeddings and transfer learning who um, I'm trying to schedule. So, so we actually, we are going to spend a whole episode on it. So hopefully actually, you know, it's not confirmed yet. I'm still trying to get them on the show, but, but uh, yeah, that's coming up. So stay tuned.
1: Uh, I know something about embedded software, but I'm pretty sure that's not what you mean by embedded. (laughs) Uh, But speaking of embedded software, I'll segue into my next uh, topic, which has to do with integer overflows. So a little bit of a setup. There's a guy named uh, Warren Buffett, who's like pretty famous investor. He runs a company called Berkshire Hathaway. And um, they do a variety of things. They actually own a lot of like household names. So let's see, like, I think they own like Geico Insurance. They own like Helsberg Diamonds.
0: Oh, I didn't know they owned anything. I thought they just bought their own stocks or something.
1: So they do a little bit of everything. Um, so they do own some companies and continue to own them. I think seize candy as well.
0: Oh, um, interesting.
1: There's like a variety. You can go. There's a list somewhere of all the like Berkshire Hathaway companies where they sort of find companies. They sort of help them, you know, replace the management, and then they have like a oh gosh a synergy. Um, but doing the companies, like one might throw out a lot of extra cash. One, you may need a lot of cash on hand, like in an insurance case, in case you have to do payouts. So there's like reasons to have some of these companies together, which is one of the things he sort of like, I don't even say like pioneered, like got right. Um, but they also do temporarily like buy parts of Apple and then sell it back without taking a, a controlling interest. And there he has, so there's a, a thing when your stock price starts to get really high it becomes really hard for uh, people to buy a share. Uh, recently, things, a lot of uh, stock brokerages have allowed you to buy fractional shares, which we won't talk about like how that implies like with voting rights, it gets into the whole thing, but you can now buy fractional shares, but you didn't used to be able to buy a part of a share. So as companies' stock price rose, it became so expensive that for an individual retail customer, they couldn't buy shares, or if they wanted to buy, like, I want to buy $1,000, but your stock is 750, there's like this $250 left over you would have bought of the company that you can't. So a lot of companies do stock splits to reduce their stock price and bring it down lower. And there's a variety of reasons why that may or may not be a good idea. Um, but Warren Buffett has like very famously said he doesn't want to split his stock. He's not going to split his stock. Um, there is actually two classes of stock, Berkshire A and Berkshire B. Berkshire, Berkshire Hathaway B Uh, actually trades at a lower price because it takes multiple of those shares to equal one of the Berkshire A shares. But Berkshire A uh, has famously never split, but it's continued to be a very successful company for many decades. And uh, it turns out that some of the exchanges, in this case, Berkshire Hathaway stock is traded on the New York Stock Exchange, and they didn't have this issue. But NASDAQ Stock Exchange publishes feeds of data that people use, For for instance, like the Yahoo or Google Finance, when you go there and you look up a stock price, they use the NASDAQ feed of prices in order to show it to you, even for things which aren't listed on NASDAQ. That's a whole other topic. And what happened is Berkshire Hathaway stock got to a price where uh, they had to actually delist it for a while, some of the the things that they were listing. Uh, And the reason why is not that the stock price uh, reached uh, what, what is it? Uh, the, so they were storing it as a 32-bit value in this NASDAQ feed to keep it nice and compact. You don't normally use um, floats or doubles when you're doing finance stuff because uh, you, can, you can get sort of, well, what's a whole other topic, but how you get numerical stability, you get sort of uh, not exact representations of some fractions. So instead what they do is they use a, you call it like a fixed point thing. They represent hundredths of cents in 32 bits. So, you have only what, 4.3 billion? So, the stock price did not reach 4.3 billion uh, per share, but it did reach $435,000, which, if you represent times uh, 100, so a penny would be what, times 10 times, or times 100 times 100, so times Uh, 10,000, equals really close to 4.3 billion. So, they had to preemptively delist the stock from, um, I guess it was like the price of the last sale and a couple of the other kinds of feeds that they have, not the daily closing, which is what kind of most people see, but this sort of intraday, like what is the last price that the stock has been exchanged at. They had to delist it from there because what would have happened is once it reached the 32-bit representational max is it would have wrapped around and it would have looked like the stock price was trading for fractions of a penny. And so that which would, have would have been, been awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a really good deal. <laughs> bye. Bye. There was some pressure given, which I don't know how you apply pressure to a very, very rich person like that, but so they kind of asked Warren Buffett, like, hey, could you just split it? Like, maybe, but he wouldn't. So, um, what they ended up having to do is preemptively delist from some of these feeds. So, I actually it was like, oh, there are some uh, crazy pictures that you can find on the internet of like, uh, the Google stock ticker, or like the, the Yahoo one, where it like kind of glitches out when it started hovering around that price. And even today, I assume it's still related. If you go to uh, Google and you ser- search for Berkshire A, B-R-K.A, which is the one we've been talking about, uh, the daily, the sort of intraday trade price is just blank. It won't show it to you. So if you click on like the month view or the year view where it's showing only the price at the end of the day, you can see that. Um, but the graph for like what's happening within a day is just blank. Um, presumably because it's still uh, not available because they're at such a high price.
0: Wow, that is that is wild. It's like, uh, it actually looks very similar to the Theranos stock graph, but for different <laughs> oh, no, reasons. No. no, it's not the same. <laughs> it's not the same.
1: <laughs> I, if someone offers you shares of Theranos, it's probably not a good idea to buy unless you really know something that no one else does.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, that is wild. So are they is are they still in a deadlock or is is somebody going to budge there? Or are they going to have to recode all of their stuff? You know, I
1: have no idea. Like, I don't know how you do an update to like switch a bit width from 32 bits to 64 bits. And this is like a feed that gets published and you know paid for by like probably, I, I don't even know, like hundred, thousands, tens of thousands of different institutions. Like yeah. I guess you make a V2 of it and then you make that one 64 bits and then you tell people, you know, they, they need to move to the V2 of the API. I and mean, that's a huge problem.
0: I remember when uh, YouTube views hit 4 billion on a video, and that was a massive, massive problem. And yeah, so yeah, that, uh, yeah, that's wild. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting that on one hand, it's like, yeah, maybe this person should, you know, just let them split. But on the other hand, it's like, well, maybe they should fix their old code. I mean,
1: yeah, it seems like kind of a silly reason to split, like, Somebody assumed your stock price would never get this high and it did. So like, do you mind making it lower?
0: I mean, it's probably great coverage too, you know?
1: I don't think, I don't think Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway need uh, more coverage, but yeah, potentially.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. It kind of, everyone wants to see it break the stock market. So they'll just buy it for that reason.
1: Yeah. I guess I should mention the region he doesn't want to, to split. I I, I kind of left that, left that uh, unsaid was that, uh, he actually doesn't want the churn that comes with retail investors. So people who, you know, buy it at oh, a lower yeah. price kind of move in and out a lot more and it gets a lot more churn. He doesn't want, he wants people buying and, and sort of holding the stock and investing and letting it go up over time. Um, so that that's sort of his, his theory there.
0: That makes sense. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. I have a whole, I mean, yeah, we won't go into the segue, but the, the whole thing about public companies and effectively random people telling your company what to do is so strange to me, but that, that, that would take a whole hour to talk about. Um, So yeah, I'll jump into mine's Lineage OS. So I've gotten so many emails from folks about either the Pine phone or the, I think it's called Librem phone. So many people are interested in this um, you know, open source phones and and totally uh, free and open source software, uh, you know, driven phones and open hardware phones. I looked into it. I thought about maybe doing, maybe we'll still do a show on it, but I, I looked into it and I found that a lot of them are either very expensive, like I think the Librem 5 is like $2,000 or something like that, or it just seems like a, like a real homebrew thing that you know, maybe you couldn't really rely on if there was an emergency or something. And so, this actually, in my opinion, seems like the way to go. Is is I, I don't I wouldn't say specifically lineage OS. There might be a better one, but it, it seems like you know getting an existing phone and just and just rewriting the the OS and and you're relying on the quality control of the hardware manufacturer seems like uh, you know a safer um, option, especially if it's Android and you're putting another Android uh, you know fork of Android on there. And so lineage OS is, is one of these where, you know, they have a list of approved devices that they've tested. And so you can go and buy like say a pixel three. I don't know if pixel three is on there now, but you, you could buy, let's say a pixel three and they'll show you step-by-step how to install this open source OS. And then you get, you know, everything now is totally open source. There's not really any surprises or anything like that. And, and they have their own app store and, and everything like that. And so this, you know, um, I have to really dive into this, but I know that folks who listen to the show are super interested in this, and I wanted to to give my take on it based on the research I've done so far, and and actually throw it back at, at folks out there. So if you've emailed us about PinePhone and and these things, you know take a look take a look at this, and then and then uh, feel free to opine, and and we can have a have a discussion on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh are you, are you this sounds like something you've looked into patrick have you looked into any of this like tiny phone or any of this
1: yeah you know i have some but it's kind of the same i i love like playing with embedded stuff but i guess i treat it as like not reliable things like my phone i'm kind of picky about i just for various reasons i just want a phone that i know is going to work that i know like if i pick it up and call a number it's going to like ring if i text someone it's, yeah you know i don't I don't know. The few times my phone doesn't work or crashes, we had this experience. Well, Actually, we went on vacation a couple of weeks ago and we, we had flown somewhere. And when we landed, uh, neither my wife nor I's phone would work. And it was incredibly hard to call the Uber without like our phones being on the specifically the, um, the LTE wouldn't work. And so we like tried like turning on airplane mode, turning it off. We eventually were able to go on like the airport Wi-Fi and like call the Uber. but then. When we walked out to like meet them, like the phone stopped working and they weren't where they said they were and we had to go back inside. It was a huge mess. Um, and then it, it actually turned out to be a little embarrassing. And when we got to the hotel, we're like, hey, does this, uh, you know, cell provider not work? You're like, no, no, it, work- it should work. Have you tried restarting your phone? I'm like, "Nah, that doesn't do anything. Restarted our phone, sure enough, like it came back. And I was just like, no, really? Yes. Wow. <laughs> and the same thing happened when we flew back here. It's It wouldn't work until we rebooted our phones. And it's just like, that little glitch and it just like it was miserable trying to like get that uber and like yeah so anyways phone's not working and like the mother it's just like we've come completely to depend on them so no i'm not i'm not spending a ton of time in this particular uh pulling of the the thread
0: yeah i might yeah i i agree with you i also have the same fear of things like i guess it would have to it would have to support the play store right because like if you couldn't you know i'm sure uber is not on this lineage os store i mean almost 100% sure so so um so yeah if if you can't run one of the major app stores then it seems like that's a non-starter or you have to carry two phones but yeah i think i think there's the idea of going to open source i mean you know i don't know about you but i run linux at home and so you know that's become just part of my daily life so so i feel what like it linux? might just be a matter of time <laughs> actually i guess uh um you're you're running at least unix so uh
1: yeah that th- there we go let's um that's what that's what windows runs on top of. no i'm just <laughs>
0: oh my god actually wait is free i'm totally gonna get so much hate for this No,
1: yeah yeah moving to the next topic yeah let's uh, just move my, on <laughs> my mine is actually a book i guess i could use this for the book of the show but there is a website I've been following about um, building your own interpreter and sort of walking through scratch. I saw my perpetual, like I have many things like this that I, I want to work um, by a guy, Robert, I think you say his name, Nystrom. And yep. he previously wrote, I think it was like game design patterns, which I felt like was a really good like approach to some design patterns under the guise of talking about it as a game because people understand games and lots of people want to build games. And I think he came from the the video game industry. But he's been writing these blog posts. You can still get them for free and like the complete sort of like book in serialized form. But he decided to make an actual print book and uh, a PDF. And the reason why I, is one calling out that like, hey, there's this cool resource you can check out about learning to, to write your own interpreters. Um, but also, like, you know, it's still in this day and age, like, it's somewhat of an accomplishment to be like, I took what was blog posts and like did the proper sort of formatting and, and got it into a book shape and just the sort of like how in some ways, even in my head, like it, it kind of gets to something a blog never does, like a finality. Like he has the book. That means it's kind of like done. So even if I don't go read the book and I go read it on his website, there's some like indication that like it's been made. It's a real thing. It contains valuable information. It's just this interesting observation that one like shout out to him, like that's super cool. Uh, and definitely go check out the material. Uh, the The bits that I've gone through are, are are very well done, and and I I really liked it. Um, but just this other thing that this sort of pointing out that it's kind of interesting that it took sort of like uh, formatting and producing the book, even though I'll probably not read the book itself, um, to kind of make it into this like it's done.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. It's a great way. to... I think you know I've seen similar patterns followed by like XKCD and other folks. Where they get a print book, and I think I think it's a great idea. Um, you know, just it's a good like coffee table thing. All right, I think it's time for book of the show. Book of the show. My book of the show is how to lead in product management, and so I'll tell you what inspired me to get this book. I, I, uh, <clears throat> a friend of mine or a colleague of mine who uh, was, like the product manager for um, our team. Is actually really knowledgeable about engineering. Has sort of like an engineering background, and um, it's just so easy to talk to this person. I mean, they get it. <clears throat> pardon me, they get it. They understand, you know, the challenges, and um, you know, they you know, they don't know an, as much about about machine learning and AI as somebody uh, an engineer on the team, but but they know a lot, and and it really helped them a lot. And it's it's also just kind of cool. It's like oh, this person gets it; they're one of us, right? And so I thought, oh, maybe I'll do this in the other direction because I talk to a lot of product managers at work, and I probably sound like like a total dummy when it comes to product to to, to building a product or advancing a product. So I thought I would get this book and uh, and learn more about you know kind of that field. It's been really interesting. I think that you know there's something really nice about you know learning a new area because you learn a lot very quickly, right? Like you're not hit with this law of marginality, right? And uh, yeah, I mean, just a couple of things that I pulled out of the book so far is um, there's this idea of having sort of shared goals and how to kind of get people aligned around the same goal. It talks about, you know, what's the difference between a vision, which is sort of like a three-year plan, and then a, like a milestone, which is a six-month plan, and then a sprint, which is like a two week, one to two week plan and sort of how you like uh, other than just the timeline, like like what, what are the actual implications of having those different timelines and how do you handle them differently? One thing I thought was really interesting is it talks about because the book is how to lead in product management. It talks about like how to sort of have a coherent vision and still have um, still give autonomy. To, to individual product managers. And so I thought that was really interesting, right? Because, you know, people think about this stereotypical Steve Jobs, like throwing the phone across the room and like upset because like the font, like the letter T isn't shaped the right way. Like these are like the f- stories that are so outlandish that they, um, they become famous, right? But the reality is, you know, all of these good product leaders were extremely good about creating a system of autonomy, and and doing that and balancing that against their own you know um, personal views and everything. So so the book covers a lot of this stuff, and I found it fascinating. It's not a long book; it's only a uh, I think five and a half hour lesson on Audible. So uh, so if you're interested in that in that discipline, definitely pick it up.
1: Yeah, that's that's a great tip. I, I liked your observation too about like what do you want to call it, like cross training, like yeah, right. stuff outside of your uh, specific job description. Uh, my book is Holy Sister by Mark Lawrence. This is uh, part of the Book of the Ancestor trilogy, uh, and this is the third book. Uh, we talked on the show a while ago, I uh, actually finished this book a while ago, about the first in the series, Red Sister, Then there's Grey Sister, and this is uh, Holy Sister, and <laughs> um, And I, this, this book is about, uh, I always struggle with this. I guess I could just read the back cover, but since it's the third book, it's spoilers if you haven't read the first book. Um, but basically there's a, you know, it's a fantasy book with, with sort of a magic system. And this book does, you know, I think pretty good. It's always hard to wrap up a series, like to, to finish a trilogy. People can complain, you know, it wasn't expected. You just, you end up either, you know, leaving stuff, out or uh, not finishing it in three and going to four, five, six and and sort of getting stuck like uh, some authors I think have have sort of fallen prey to. Um, But this trilogy is done at uh, the third book and it it sort of comes to a conclusion. Um, But what I liked about it is there's like a magic system that's pretty different. And there's some stuff about the world building. And um, it doesn't go slow. Like the book, each book is sort of like interesting and engaging and really moves stuff forward. But then there is like kind of a slow burn, like world building. There's other stuff that you're sort of aware of, but you don't quite know that you're figuring out. And just that sort of like uh, sense of discovery that I get by reading some um, fiction, science fiction books specifically, you know, or fantasy. I I just really enjoy being able to like go on that, that sort of journey. I guess some movies can do that too. Uh, And sometimes it's like a plot twist, but I, I don't like ones that are just like, oh, there's this came out of right field and wasn't really hinted at, or I guess out of left field. Out of left field and wasn't <laughs> really hinted at. I like ones where the it was there if you knew where to look, right? Like there were sort of nods and hints to it all along. And if you were to rewatch it or like think back, you're like, oh, almost like, how did I miss this? Or, oh, wow, that's really cool. That's why that oh, thing that's that was left unsaid, you know? Those are some of my favorite kind of um, experiences. And I, I thought this book did a good job uh, sort of capturing that in that this trilogy. Uh and Mark lawrence has some other uh, series as well, but I'm not going to talk about them cuz uh, they may be future book of the shows.
0: Nice. I was we were at a mall the other day, like uh not a mall, but a plaza, and there was a Warhammer 40K store. Oh, really? And, a Games uh,
1: Workshop store.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And um and there's a bunch of books and uh I was there mm-hmm. with with uh, my older son and he was he's was checking out the books and um do, do you have any experience with those like is is like the or maybe Warhammer
1: like 40k universe like the books Yeah, right. Not you're They're not like, talking about the game manuals. You're talking about just the fiction works.
0: Right, right. Like do you think that would be a good uh or like maybe a better question is what what would you think would be a good book for like kids who are getting into sci-fi?
1: Uh, you know, that's that's really interesting. So Ender's Game is like a really classic. Oh like, yeah. I've read that. Yeah. Yep. Like first, first thing, but I actually think this, this one's a little tough. Like people, like especially kids, like you want them to be, it's not a chore. Like if you tell them to read a book, you're automatically kind of like, it's not gonna. It, it, it's something they need to like, you know, maybe provide like a selection or like some guidance into like a certain, you know, uh curated set that like hey like which of these seems interesting to you uh, but i think, yeah like like motivating kids to read until like some point um is more about like having them choose stuff that they were interested in reading because even if you're like yeah that book ended up being dumb like <laughs> my kids have read some of those um like wow that book was not very good but like if they were interested they feel the sense of accomplishment of finding something they wanted to do and then doing it yeah so, right I mean, I don't know. No, I don't know anything specifically about the Warhammer 40k universe, um, but whether good or bad. But yeah, I mean, I think if it's something they're really into, then they're much more likely to coast through if there's like boring parts of the book or whatever. Then if you sort of like recommend a book and they get to some part and then they just like it's a chore to do the reading.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally makes sense. Cool. Um, yeah. And if you uh, want to read any of these books or if you want your kids to read any of these books, they could do it on audible or I guess listen to any of these books. I'm still actually, I've gotten back into audible. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I'm not commuting anymore because of, of work from home. But, uh, um, what I've started doing is listening to audio books, um, you know, in the evening, or I've been going on walks. The nice thing is I, I go on a walk and, and, uh, uh, the path that I take, I actually lose cell phone reception because I go through this this kind of valley that that doesn't have good uh, coverage. And the nice thing about Audible is you know I've downloaded the book and so I can listen. You know it doesn't cut out or anything like that. Um, versus if I do anything streaming, and I get halfway through my walk and it's it's just sputtering or sounding like a robot. So so yeah, I've been actually getting back into Audible for that reason. And if you want to do that. Um, you can go to audibletrial.com slash programming throwdown. We'll have a link in the, uh, in the show notes and uh, that gives you a free month and also helps the show out as well. If you already have an audible subscription and you don't need another one, you can uh, follow us on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash programming throwdown. And uh, um, you can go on there. We have a super fast uh, download sites. So there's a special site for Patreon subscribers um who uh a special rss seed for those folks and uh yeah you should check that out
1: i think it's time for tool of the show
0: my tool of the show is seven billion humans which is a video game a lot of people have suggested over the years programming video games you know like video games where you write computer programs as Mm -hmm. the game
1: human resources yes wait what was that Oh, sorry, that's one of those games. I think it's human resources.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. So this is actually the sequel to that one.
1: Oh, okay. Oh, human resource machine.
0: Yeah, that's right. So so I've played so many of them at the request of of listeners and the only one I ever liked was Human Resource Machine. Like all the other ones I just couldn't get into. Like some of them it's like oh you have to read a manual first and
1: oh it and is I didn't know this. I spoiled your punch I'm sorry.
0: No no no. And so I got to Human Resource Machine and uh someone as I said a listener recommended it and I was like okay this is simple there's not that many instructions but it's deceptively hard. Because you they have these like uh stretch goals, like solve this in four instructions and stuff. And that's and so I found it really, really engaging uh in a way that I didn't find the other ones. And then and then I uh I, I somehow I, this one I came about on my own. I don't remember exactly how. Oh yeah, it was it's part of a humble bundle. So I I think the humble bundle will be expired by the time uh you you're listening to this, unfortunately. But uh, I found out about this through a humble bundle. I ended up actually not even getting the bundle because I wanted it on Android, and the bundle is for pc. so <laughs> so you're not missing anything there. but um it's awesome. So the way this this the sequel works is you actually you, you control like many different people with the same instructions, um but you know they can branch differently depending on their environment. And so you use that trick to have a whole bunch of people do like a lot of things at the same time to accomplish some bigger goal. So, like, you know, the first level is very simple. It's like, have everyone take a step to the right. And so you just put in one command step, right. And all these people there's like a whole army of people. They all just take a step to the right. And so you kind of start to understand, um, you know, what you're doing. And then you start to see like, Oh, okay, this person couldn't take a step to the right. They bumped into the wall and now, that person is now shifted relative to everybody else. And maybe you can use that to your advantage, right? So it's it's a really, really fun game. And I, I highly recommend it. I, I think of all the programming games, this one and its predecessor have been by far the most fun. Um, I, I've tried to get my uh, kids into it, but uh, I think it still feels a bit too out of reach for them. Uh, it's a little bit too... Uh, it requires a bit too much upfront for for a for a for a six-year-old or whatever but actually now my son is older i might try again but yeah i highly recommend it if you want a programming game a game that where programming is the game this one and the prequel are definitely the ones to start with
1: nice i'm gonna i'm adding this to my list i i did like the i think i got all the way to the end i didn't do all the challenges but of human resource machine
0: yeah actually it's the only game i think i have hundred percented in in my Whoa, life look at you. <laughs> yeah <laughs>
1: all right my game I have not 100%ed is Moss so I actually think this was a like normal game um like a normal PC game before like a first person game a platformer but I'm not I'm not 100% sure but this is I want to talk about the VR version the virtual reality version um and I did look it up because I I knew I would want to say it and so I, I checked it's available on the Oculus which is how I played it PC VR and the PlayStation VR so a variety of options there. Wait,
0: real quick, what is PC VR?
1: Oh, uh, that just means like if you have uh, like Oculus Rift, or oh, uh, HT- is it the HTC Vive, or the Valve Index, um, and you have oh. it basically connected via like your computer is doing all of the playing and rendering, and then your headset is basically like a fancy monitor, and like a gyroscope controller, right? It's feeding back.
0: Oh, um, interesting! And so
1: the headset itself doesn't have the the game power. Versus like an um, Oculus Quest that um, is uh, basically like a cell phone doing all of the rendering and stuff uh, in your headset.
0: I see. So you're you're tethered to the computer, and and I didn't even right. know about this. So Steam has has a VR headset.
1: Yes. Wow. Well, not Steam, a company that owns Valve, Valve the Index. Oh, Valve.
0: Okay, got it, got it. Okay, yeah.
1: cool. But you can buy, um, Steam has VR games on it and a, like an interface for playing the VR games. Oculus for like the Rift has like a PC app that you run that allows you to do it as well. And you can hook your Oculus Quest to your computer or Quest 2, I guess, to your computer via like a really long USB-C cable. With a whole bunch of caveats, and actually have your computer do the rendering and send it. Or now they even have it wireless, where your computer can do the rendering, which could be more powerful if you could find a GPU or already bought a GPU before they became impossible and super expensive. (laughs) Um, That's right. And like wirelessly stream the basically the graphics to your headset and the controls from your headset back to the computer, which allows you to play games that wouldn't be available natively or wouldn't be able to run. So stuff like Half Life Alex, you can play on the Oculus if you play it on your computer and stream it to your headset.
0: Yeah, that I've actually done. I bought um, on Amazon Prime Day, I bought a um, Wi-Fi extender. Uh-huh. And so what I do is I have this Wi-Fi extender, which has its own SSID. And then the Wi-Fi extender is physically plugged into my desktop with a, with a, with a cat cable. Um, and then I do the Air Link on the Oculus Quest. Yep. But when I do the Air Link, it's on the extended network. And so the, the uh, Quest talks straight to the extender, which is like two feet away, which is wired to the PC. And so with that whole setup, the Airlink works amazing.
1: Uh, yes. My problem is my PC does not have a VR-capable. It's like the last generation before it was really like oh, VR-capable cards. And then I went to upgrade once I got one and then found out like, oh, yeah, that was a bad timing. Oh, man. So, um, OK, anyways, Moss. So Moss is a pretty interesting game, and I actually play it. And we stream the like what I'm seeing or what my kids are seeing to the TV. So we sort of play it as as kind of like a family. But it's like a platformer where uh, you're a little uh, mouse, like running around and like going through sort of set pieces. And so you as the I don't know how you describe this. Like you're controlling the animal, but your headset is like a sort of third person like set piece view. So you're looking down on like a scene. And you're controlling what happens. But then, uh, you, you know, you're sort of like, once you get to the sort of like exit of that scene, then it sort of like goes to the next scene. Kind of like what like a uh, point and click adventures used to be. Oh, okay, where, okay. Yeah, you like go to the edge of the scene and we go to the next one. But each scene is like a set. And then that you're like sense. moving through the set. It's like that, but like in VR. And it's a super cool. And I, I don't like, it's kind of nice. Like sometimes moving around and like walking and, like, all that stuff in VR is is really fun, but also can be sort of, like, uh, you don't want to do that every time. At least I don't. Sometimes it's, like, it's nice to, it even tells you, like, sit in a chair and, um, you know, just, like, have the cool visuals.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great. So, what is, so, is it literally a point-and-click adventure? Like, you're trying to solve little
1: mini-puzzles? Um, I mean, it's a, not, like, a point, it's, like, a, a platformer. Oh, okay, got so, it, got it. So, yeah, so, trying to, yeah. yeah. And there's like puzzles that you need to do and interact with. I, there's probably a name for that kind of game, but I, I, it escapes me what genre that would be.
0: I think platformer, yeah. I mean, there's there's a Metroidvania where you are you have but kind of an involves, open like, world. But that involves like you
1: need to go back to previous ones. Yeah, to like right. It. Yeah, it's not like that.
0: Oh, okay, got it. Maybe it's just a straight platformer. It's like, I think they call it a puzzle platformer. Oh, okay. Where yeah, like a regular platformer right. is like Mario, you're just stepping on things, but this is more like a puzzle platformer.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Cool. Yeah, will have to check that out. I love those type of games.
1: Well, I don't know about you, but I'm ready to, to take a I mean, talk about vacation. <laughs> yeah, I'm totally, totally ready to take a vacation.
0: We're gonna take a vacation from the show, so I'll catch you all now. But I think uh vacations are extremely, extremely important, especially now. Um, um, I think Patrick, you'll probably echo this, but so many people on my team and at my company have maxed out their vacation and uh, are literally just losing vacation um, days and, 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 and not taking them. And, um, you know, I think there's this feeling like, well, I work from home. I can, you know, do the laundry while I'm at work. And so, you know, everything is kind of like a mix of, you know, working and not working. And so I don't really need a vacation or, or maybe I'm going to wait until, you know, COVID is over. But, but we're really starting to see the effects of that. And so I felt like it's it's a good time to really talk about why we do vacations, how to take a good vacation, and what are sort of the different kinds of vacations and, and how you have to act differently when you're uh, you know planning for one of those.
1: Yeah, I think company to company vacation policies vary wildly between the United States and not United States, Europe, uh, Asia, like also tons of variation yep. in um, the expectations and culture around vacations. But as, yeah, I'll echo it is being said that like it's it is important to not burn out to take time for yourself or your family to do something fun i think a lot of people are saving it up right now under the current environment so they just want to do something super fun and all the fun things seem like you can't do them right now like going on the going on international flights or grand trips involves like a lot of extra um uh we want to say like getting covid checked and risks and people are just you know not comfortable doing it. so i feel like people are saving up but i mean that, what I always find, and I don't, we don't have this called out to talk about, so I will just talk about it now, but like sometimes it's you don't think you need a vacation until it's too late. Like by the time you realize, like I really need a vacation, then you need to plan it. You know, you, you're gonna like schedule your time off, and then by the time you get there, you're like way past when you should have done it.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think we can start it off with this um, article that I'll link to in the show notes. It talks about the seven types of rest. And um, I really found this powerful. I read this a while back and, and I was able to dig it up. The first type of rest is physical rest. I mean, that's what most people think about. Like, you know, you run a run a few miles or something and then, okay, I need to rest. Um, the second type is mental rest. And so, you know, you can imagine this pretty easily too. Like you um, are uh, doing, you do a chess tournament or something and then afterwards you're really <laughs> tired,
1: right? Debug um, my program.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, You play a human resource machine and then you need to rest. The third type of rest is sensory rest. This is really, really important. You know, I feel like, uh, um, and we'll talk about this in more detail, but I feel like, especially with, um, you know, little kids, that like, you know, when I have a vacation, I actually, you know, don't, it's the opposite of sensory rest. So in other words, like like for me to get sensory rest, I have to go back to work. And that just means, you know, sensory rest can mean different things to different people. It could mean, you know, bright lights and the computer screen in your face. That's one type of sensory overload. It could be just a lot of people around you all talking and having different conversations at the same time and you kind of trying to listen to all of them. Um, but, you know, all of that stuff can can fatigue you on in that dimension. Um, there's creative rest where, you know, you you might feel compelled to start a new project or invent something new. Like maybe your job right now is to find the next big thing and so you're just spending all your time trying to um, figure out like what was the right path and you can get burnt out in that way. Um, emotional rest and uh, spiritual rest. Um, so yeah, take a look at this article, but I felt like you know, we can kind of use that to set the stage for, you know, like, like what well, the biggest reason to go on vacation, which is to, to get that rest so that you can, uh, you know, come back with the energy you need to, to do the next thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think like I was mentioning before, like, but sometimes by the time you need that rest, the the sort of vacation, which I think is a great opportunity. So some of those kinds of rest you probably should be doing continuously, (laughs) Um, but a vacation provides a a a time to step away. Um, I think you know just put stuff on hold, and I also I think it's different, and taking a vacation when other people are continuing to get the work done and you're stepping away from it, than like when. Like, let's say at, at, you know, Christmas time here in the United States, like maybe your company gives like a week off and everybody has off. I think those two things are actually slightly different in mentally how like it's good to allow other people to make progress on something and come back and see like the world turns without you versus like everybody takes off and then you come back and everybody's starting up again.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. Yeah. I think, I think one of the sort of anti-patterns to a good vacation is is where you know you take the time off and you come back and you're two weeks behind, right? Oh. And, then, and it's like you didn't really take a vacation; you just like procrastinated, right? I mean, it just need your deadlines
1: get closer. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. So reasons we should talk a little bit about reasons to not take a vacation. So I mean, a lot of people aren't taking vacations, and so we should talk about what those reasons are because because they are real. I mean, they're rational. If people feel like they can lose context. Um, you can miss an opportunity. Maybe there's a plan to have, let's say, an intern, and you took a vacation when the intern applications went out, or you took a vacation in the summer, and so your intern wouldn't have a manager, right? So, so you can miss opportunities to do things that are seasonal or just maybe just, just uh, serendipitous, but they just happen while you were gone, and and you can slip on your deadline, right? If you have a six month goal, and you take a month off but you don't change the goal or you don't plan around that then you know you still have 6 months of work to do and so that these are reasons that people will give for not taking a vacation and those are valid reasons but I think you yeah, with the right planning and the right mental model you can uh, ameliorate a lot of these issues
1: yeah i mean talking about planning i mean i think there is some some stuff you should do so you know making sure that you've handed off responsibility for stuff you're gonna do, so like Jason mentioned, that it's not just like you deferred something for a week and then everything is piling up. You know, making sure other people um, are able to help the work that you've done. So if you're a manager, that means something different than if you're a director. It means something different if you're like a you know individual contributor. But you know, making sure that people kind of know what you are doing and that's an important thing in general. Uh, I'll, I'll say it here too. I think people going on vacation is important for preparing for unexpected absences. So Sometimes someone can go on a vacation, you can plan for it, but some people just get sick or have, you know, it'd be horrible, but someone could be incapacitated from working for an extended amount of time or even pass away or whatever, right? And as like in the scale of that, obviously, like your work stuff isn't that important, but like, um, I mean, making Mm -hmm. sure that if someone has to step away unexpectedly, that the team doesn't crumble while they're gone. And part of that taking vacations is sort of like repeatedly making sure the team knows how to cover or, Oh, while you were gone, no one was able to log into that system. So, like, we need you to make sure you have the credentials put somewhere or other people have access. Um, making sure your code is documented in a way that if someone else has to go in there and debug an issue, that they're not like screaming at you where you can hear them on your vacation. Um, <laughs> and then also, like, you know, making sure that you. As bad as it is, like certain roles and responsibilities, like Jason just mentioned, these reasons why not. Sometimes you need to decide, like, how available will you be to work while you're on your vacation? And different people decide differently about this. Um, Some people say, you know, if it's an emergency, you can call me. Some people say, hey, let me know about X, Y, or Z, or I'm going to check in each day or every other day. Some people are like, I'm basically dunking my phone in the ocean and, like, I'll buy a new one when I get back. So, you you know, decide up front, like what the expectations are with your team about how open you are to being, but it is important to, my thing is like, if you're going on vacation, it really should be, you're not checking sort of your chat rooms, you're not checking your emails every day, but that, you know, maybe if there really is a legitimate reason, someone could reach out to you and get a hold of you. But also like, do you take your work laptop if you have one or not? Like if you don't take your work laptop, it may limit how much you could do. Um, and so making sure that like lines are drawn around that with your, uh, with your team, with your manager, um, and, and getting all that settled up front.
0: Yeah. We should talk a little bit here about, you know, us personally, my view on this has evolved over the years. I used, um, uh, well, there was a time when we worked at a place where when you were on vacation, you didn't have access to anything. And so that, that kind of made the decision for us, but, Back in the day. But, <laughs> Back back in my day, um, but now, uh, you know. So, so, starting from the time where we had control over what like how much we wanted to do on vacation, I used to kind of bring yeah, bring my work laptop, bring my work phone, and just be totally plugged in on vacation. And then slowly, I've been moving away from that model. and I've gotten to the point now where I literally I don't bring anything and I don't I don't have any connection at all. And what I found what what I found for myself is as I did less and less work while I was on vacation, my work quality also went way down because i would have less context and so i would just make bad decisions and do bad things and so i realized at some point i was like okay i'm on vacation and instead of working 100% i'm doing 10% work that is terrible and like destructive and so 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 i got to the point where it's like okay i'm on vacation you know i'm off the grid and um, i give you know people my like personal phone number if there's something really urgent but in practice, it's almost never, only a handful of times has it ever come up. And uh, that's kind of where I've evolved to. But, but what's, how have you evolved, Patrick? Like, where are you at?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it changes over time. My current thing that works for me, I think, is like, here's my phone number. I mean, I, that's everyone's personal decision. But like, here's my phone number. Look, if something comes up where, and, and I'm in a position where I, you know, manage some people now, so it's a little bit different like i tell them like look if there's a problem where it would really benefit from me being involved like use your discretion to the people on my team or to, to my manager like call me i'd rather handle an, an hr issue or whatever even if i'm on vacation than to come back and have it had been an issue for a, you know a week and it, and that being really stressful to a person or the team or to whatever and so i i tell them like look you can text me or you can call me but I tell him, Otherwise, I'm not going to check my emails. So if you send me an email and just maybe he'll check it, I'm not going to. And so I, I don't. I don't check my email. I sign out of our chat app, you know. And if someone needs to SMS me or needs to call me, like I tell them that they can. They've been respectful of that. Now that could vary workplace to workplace. And some workplaces I know people do that, and they would get abused, and it would just be constantly being called. And um, you know, there's a lot more context we should talk about there. But like that, that's my personal thing. Although I will say that you know, while we're talking about vacations, there's other kinds of things. Like if you, if someone were to pass away and you're on bereavement leave or you're on sick leave for me personally, like when I'm doing those things, if, if I'm unable to, like Jason said, do quality work, then I'll be off. But I, I have a tendency, like if I'm just sick, I will check in on email or check my chats just in case I could be helpful to someone. Um, I just not up to working a full day.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I think, uh, I'm the same way when I'm sick. I usually work Uh, just I use the sick day to basically say, look, I can't be a hundred percent. But there are some days, yeah, where I where I where I mark myself as sick, but I'm like ninety nine percent available. But yeah, for for vacation, you, I I I had a phase where I was like that, where I basically said, um, you know, here's my thing. If there's some HR issue, let me know. But then what I found is that while I'm on vacation, I kind of make bad decisions. (laughs) You know, it's like it's like I'm there on the beach you know uh drinking margaritas or something and then someone has some hr issue and then i have to make a decision right then and there and usually you know what happens when you're on vacation is people will they'll only reach you if there's an emergency and so what you end up with is you end up with just emergencies and it gives you like a really odd uh lens through which you view your job because it just it's just like it's like weekly emergencies but but no context and so uh yeah and then when I look back on how did I handle those emergencies and like you know what actually transpired I was like yeah I probably should have just like uh, not handled it and do it, done nothing until I got back um, but but yeah that's very small sample size I mean we only go on so many vacations a year right so but yeah in that very small sample size I found so so I've gone this way we'll see how it goes uh, my most recent vacation which I just got back from was uh was a week and I was uh totally off the grid for that week and uh so far so good but but you still have a
1: job back, and, and nothing burned down. Came
0: back, still have a job. I think if if I took a long vacation and I came back and something really went wrong and I, you know, just let it go wrong, I think then I'll have a that perspective and I'll have the full three sixty. I,
1: I mean I'll say here too, some people may be thinking like, oh I must be nice. I, I mean I do know there are situations where deciding you want to take a vacation is something you need to negotiate with your you know sort of management and there could be a crunch time or could be something where you really feel you need to take a vacation and you you just can't and look those situations you know do happen i won't say that there aren't times that i probably didn't take a vacation despite really needing or wanting to because it just wasn't appropriate but like with everything i mean you know, your work-life balance is something that varies person to person. If, As Jason and I are alluding to, like, I mean, I think that uh, over time, like how I've approached work-life balance, how I've approached these choices has has changed. Not just because, I, I'm just at a different place in my life. Not, not because necessarily just work has changed, but I've changed.
0: Yeah, that's true um, too.
1: And so I, I think you got to make decisions about vacation that are right for you, for your family, for your work. Um, and if and if you're like, look, I, I can't take the vacations I really need to and work won't let me and and you're being you know honest with yourself, you know, maybe you, you got to find a new job. But I don't think just because work says, you know, oh, you know, that's not we, we deny that vacation. Like, that's a bad week. Can you take it a few weeks later? I mean, there could be legitimate reasons for that.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally makes sense. Yeah, I think uh, I mean, I've been in sort of research labs the whole time, so I haven't really. It's been a long time since I was part of like a product cycle, but yeah, that will, that will affect your, uh, you know, when you should take a vacation. And in general, you know, if you have a good read on the ebb and flow of things, you know, it's obviously always best to take a vacation when it's a slow time. But, uh, Oh, I, another thing is, is yeah. When I, I used to do crew in high school, which all don't know crew is very simple. It's just rowing a boat. <laughs> so basically you all start in the same place in a line. And you all row a boat in a straight line. It's like drag racing with a boat that you row with your hands. And so um, you might think, well, oh, it's it's you just everyone just row the boat as fast as they can. But actually in crew, you'd have these things called power 10, where you'd have 10 like really powerful strokes and and everyone does a power 10 at the same time. That way you don't have one person rowing really hard, encountering all sorts of resistance, and the other people not, right? And so you know, even in something where it only has one singular goal, which is to go in a straight line as fast as possible, even then you have lulls, right? You have ebbs and flows. So, um, you know, people have learned that that's sort of, you end up getting to the goal faster if you have sort of those slow times and those power times. And so, and so it's the same thing with work. I mean, you're going to be working for who knows, 20, 30 years, 40 years. And so, Um, you know, you're going to need to take those breaks so that you can have those like really powerful moments later on. It's all kind of, you know, even if you are totally 100% type A, you know, career oriented, you still like having the right vacation is key to, you know, getting to the finish line as quickly
1: as possible. What about once you have taken your vacation, which we shouldn't talk about all the awesome places we've all gone, but now we're back. um, And then like, you know, when you get back, you got to, catch back up. I think sometimes not going on vacation is just the dread of what's going to happen when you get back. Um, But I think actually the things you would do when you get back and how, not just like how bad, but how much there is to do probably is something that tells you like maybe there's stuff to change around, like even in your day to day. So one thing, like you come back and you have hundreds of unread emails you need to go through. I mean, maybe that's your job. Maybe that's like uh, something unavoidable. But for me, a lot of those emails are stuff I probably never needed to know about, not really. I don't need to know about when I get back. So having filters that put those into buckets that I can easily organize and skim through very quickly for things that are like, one thing I don't like about email, or at least how how our email is at work, is like things are just intermixed, right? So you're just getting like a personal question and then you're getting like an automated email and then you're getting, you know, and it's just the organization isn't good having rules or filters or searches you can do where you kind of take care of everything related all at one time something you need to do to manage the bulk when you get back but something you probably should do all the time
0: yeah the nice thing about doing it when you get back from vacation is you have a lot of unread emails and so there's there's like an incentive to filter things because you don't have to read them whereas if you're reading like emails as they come in it's like oh i've already read this i'm not going to you know filter it but it's like, yeah, if you have like 20 of these, and I don't know, it, it might depend on the email app you use, but for, for my job, they use Outlook. With Outlook, you can like control click several emails and then say filter like this, and it'll come up with like various rules that will that that capture all of those emails without capturing too much. And so I mean you could filter based on who sent it, you can filter based on the subject. And so that's, like, having a bunch of unread emails gives you, like, an opportunity to set some rules that are pretty comprehensive.
1: I mean, I think the other thing, if you're a programmer, which most of you probably are, uh, when you get back, I think it's important to uh, look through the code changes that have happened while you're gone. Uh, catch up on what what's changed. If anyone was looking for feedback or if you have any comments, you know, making sure that you sort of, kind of know what the state is of what you're walking, walking back into. If any design documents have come back out, whatever planning has happened, um, you know, making sure that you, you talk to key people and, and sort of figure out uh, what's gone on since you've been there. Another thing is like more recently, especially with the, at least as for my company, with, with work from home, a lot more chats that happen. And so trying to go back to the chats and see like what got talked about, was there anything that I, I kind of missed that I should follow up on, Um, and just getting through all of that, that sort of like first day back is, uh, important to getting back up to speed.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally makes sense. Yeah. I think, um, um, yeah, another thing specific to work from home or maybe even, maybe even not specific, but especially important when you work from home is, is, is getting that transition, right. You know, like, uh, almost like, like having some time, if you're going to, let's say go on a big family trip then if you're working right up until, you know, 10 p.m. before the family trip and then 5 a.m. the next morning you're in the car like driving cross country, like you're going to be really stressed out, right? And so you almost it's important to have like some type of buffer. You know, depending on your situation, maybe you need to take an extra day or two off before the before the vacation or maybe you um, you know, do a half day or something depending on how your circumstances are. But you want to be rested before your vacation starts. And and this gets back to that TED talk, right? The vacation is going to exhaust you in in dimensions in some dimensions and recharge you in others. And so, I mean, and this depends too on the vacation. Like, if you have a vacation where you just get to stay home and play video games, that's awesome. And that's, oh yeah, that's, that's the best. The staycation is amazing. But if you have a uh, like an adventure vacation, I don't know what you'd call it, but some kind of expedition. If that's your vacation, maybe you're going to go uh, uh, skiing and it's going to really physically exhaust you or something, right? Like a lot of vacations are going to exhaust you in different ways. Um, and so you actually need to kind of have a vacation from the vacation as well.
1: You kind of hit on it a little bit on like the, the types of vacation, like, you know, what you're doing if you're just sitting on the beach or if you're uh, climbing to the top of Kilimanjaro, like maybe these aren't the same. I I think another way that vacations are pretty different is kind of like on the length. And so Jason and I talked about this kind of like briefly before we we got started, but like for a really short vacation, we were thinking, you know, a couple of days, probably less than a week, then maybe people just sort of hold off on things. Like if you had something, you know, no one's going to really work it. If they have a question for you, they're going to just kind of wait till you get back. Um, you know, that, th- that sort of like short vacation and it's good to take those. Sometimes you can do fun stuff in, for, in just a couple of days for yourself personally, but from a work perspective that doesn't really serve the same sort of uh, role as like taking a full, like one to two weeks, then you need people to like fill in for you. Your work has to kind of like be taken over. Yep. Uh, I guess it depends on the speed of, of stuff you're going and your, your job situation. But like at that point too, I think that's useful for your organization. Also there's something just like Jason was talking about other kinds of rest, like the length of rest. It takes a day or two when you're in a place just to like realize you don't have to do work the next day. And then like, eh, like the day, for me at least, like the day before I go back, I'm kind of like prepping myself mentally. So if you're only going on one to three days, you never fully check out. But once you get up to like two weeks, especially, you know, you have a real opportunity to check out and really focus on other things.
0: Yeah, I mean, once you start hitting the one to two weeks, then that's the time when people are just, people who depend on you are just not going to tolerate. I mean, most, most projects can't be stalled for two weeks. And so you're going to need to find some kind of deputy, right? Like you're going to need to find somebody who can be your second in command for that particular task, right? If you are the um, expert on the data processing pipeline for your team, you know, and you're gone for two weeks, like someone else is going to have to be able to fix problems with the data processing pipeline. And so, um, so, so, you know, before you can really take a two week vacation, like there needs to be redundancy. So that's sort of a um, sort of like a prerequisite. Otherwise you're not going to really be able to take a vacation. Um, You're going to have to be on call in some way, shape or form. And so, yeah, it kind of, you know, it's kind of nice, like, like, like forcing yourself to take a two week vacation is also forcing yourself to train other people. And, um, um, you know, some people might say, well, you know, training other people, just takes extra time and that person is not indebted to it. Right. But, but it's actually, it's going to get another person looking at this system. And, and maybe, you know, even when you get back, that person can continue helping you. It's going to help build your sense of direction as an engineer. So it's it's got a lot of positives beyond just being able to let you take a break.
1: And then if you could be so lucky as to be for a, a month or more, um, I, sometimes I guess you stretch out and you call it a sabbatical, um, then I think you know that's the time when there really has to be a replacement for you. It's not that you are are, are not going to be able to come back to that work, but just There are goals that you were doing, which will be accomplished by other people. There will be changes potentially to your organization, to whatever, and when you come back, you really have been away. Um, And I think there's a certain value. So I've never been able to do this while working at a place, but between jobs, I have taken three weeks off, four weeks off before. Um, And I guess when I did, my work gave me enough parental leave where I was able to take sort of four weeks off in one go when, when I had one of my children. Uh, And I think there you get a true, you know, I'm away from work. I have to not just be away from work and doing something. I need to figure out like how to organize my non-work life. Like, you know, you got to have structure to your time away. You got to have things to do. You get our non-work routine. And I think that's a really like nice way to get perspective on uh, a lot of stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, once you're gone for, you know, a month, then it's it's not just about maintaining your responsibility, but someone else is going to have to advance them. Like you can't, almost nothing can just sit still for a month. And so, yeah, you're going to have to re- get replaced. And so, um, yeah, and then when you come back after being gone for several months, then it's, that's a really interesting feeling because you've replaced yourself. And so when you come back, it's like, do you displace those people or do you <laughs> find something else to do? I mean, there's a lot of questions there. Those are ultimately very, very rewarding vacations when you can take a really long time. And, and I mean, now we're getting to the point, as I was saying, with so many people are maxing out their PTO, and I don't remember what the max is. I think, I want to say it is 10 weeks, I think.
1: I, I think it varies yeah. workplace to workplace, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well,
0: yeah, that, that's definitely true. But, uh, but I think where I work, it's 10 weeks, maybe 10 and a half or something like that and so, and so yeah i mean if if you could- i mean there's people plenty of people who can take uh you know two and a half months off, and so, yeah, with that, you know if someone does that they they could come back and their team could be totally different and so um which again is is not a bad thing at all um what is your take on on that? so let's say you have i mean parental leave is a bit different, right, but let's say you have just a huge bank of p t o would you break it up and take? you know, a week every month, or would you take a huge chunk of it at once? What would you do?
1: Oh, man, that's a great question. I mean, I guess it kind of depends. Like, I do not think I would take, I don't know, personally, whatever, I guess I, it's true for like me financially, but as well, it's like, I just don't have like a zero balance doesn't uh, do it for me. So I don't think I would take it all. But I definitely would try to take like a vacation to maybe another country or to something or do some like project that I really wanted to focus on and do and, and really take a good chunk of it off at one time. I don't think I would go down to zero. I'd probably go down. I like having, for my situation, I like having, you know, like a week available so that like I could always take a couple days and then not be at zero and then take a couple days again. Right. So yep. I like going down to no more than sort of like one week in the, like not having less than a week left. So if I had 10 weeks, I, but i'm going to i'm going to fantasize if i had 10 weeks off <laughs> i think i would take at least a 6 week chunk and do something amazing
0: yeah yeah that makes sense i think um you know, my last big vacation was um i did get a month sabbatical through work and uh the way it was uh set up you had to take the whole month at once you weren't given an option and so it was really nice i mean we drove cross country but it definitely was was weird coming back Actually, when I came back, there was a, a reorg. So when I came back, uh, the organization looked totally different. Um, so, so it is a bit jarring. But yeah, I'm kind of with you, I think. So actually, one thing to mention is neither one of us have maxed out our PTO. And so <laughs> number one piece of advice is to not do that and to please take your vacation for all these reasons we talked about. But, but if for some reason I ended up with 10 weeks of PTO, yeah, I would probably take, yeah, probably two months. And uh, yeah, same kind of thing. Just focus or find something cool to do or take an international trip or something. Yep. Cool. All right. Um, so yeah, folks out there, uh, you know, if you have any vacation tips, we can make it the intro topic of, of the next show. So, so give us your, your feedback on on you know what you think constitutes a good vacation, uh, vacation horror stories, uh, pretty much anything. You can send an email to programmingthrowdown at gmail.com. And we always appreciate reading uh, really cool stories. I got an email just just to, to kind of close this out. Um, I got an email regarding, uh, a, f- a number of emails, but one of them regarding our Hash Maps episode that just went live. And someone, there's a really amazing article. I'll have to go back and find it for next week, for, for next show, um, about how Google used like brute force to kind of break some some hashing. Um, so I'll share that with everybody, but I really appreciate that and all the other emails and, um, thanks everyone for tuning in.
1: All right. See you next time. Music by Eric Barndoller.